The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. All right. Well, hi, Gib. Welcome to the show. One of the main reasons I was keen to interview you is because, well, you've done so much in the product world. You've been involved in lots of interesting companies who've gone from various different journeys, from startups to scale-ups, taking companies public, building your own companies, selling them on. You've done so many different things in that space. And what's also interesting to me is that you don't necessarily have a classic product background. You sort of grew into a lot of these things. So one of the things I love about this show is I get to interview lots of people to hear their sort of story about how they sort of found their way to not only what they're doing today, but what they're looking to do in the future. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, how did you sort of not even start off in this industry, but like, how did you sort of come to being here today? Thank you, Barry. It's fun to be here. I grew up in New England. I went to a small liberal arts college called Amherst College. I was an English major. I took a year off from there to run a sailing school all over the country. It's called J World. And then I eventually landed in the Bay Area. I was afraid that I would turn into a sailing bum and I wanted to be engaged in a creative industry. So I joined McCann Erickson, an ad agency in San Francisco in the mailroom and then slowly worked my way out. I grew up initially as a marketing person. Then I went to business school back at Dartmouth, which it was the one ski area that had its own ski lift, which was important to me. And then when I came back to the West Coast, which I love for its skiing and windsurfing, I joined Electronic Arts when it was a pretty young company in 1991. And it was there that I switched from marketing into product. And I love building stuff there. It was a great place to learn how to build stuff. My first software startup was called Creative Wonders. I built Sesame Street software, sold that to Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful of Shark Tank. He ran the learning company. We sold that to Mattel. Later, I joined Netflix, and my last startup was called Chag. It's a textbook rental company. And then I skipped over all the many mistakes and failures. <laughs> so just add one in, you know, at every juncture there. In the last three years, I've largely been, uh, I've got creative pursuits. I love to give talks. I love to write. I love to do workshops. And from time to time, I do a podcast. Well, that's why I'm lucky to have you. One of those short times you get to do it. Um, yeah. So I think like lots of things to draw on there, you know, and thank you for highlighting that there were a few mistakes along the way. Many. Yeah. <laughs> and I think um, that's what I love to sort of dive into when I'm speaking with people is what were sort of some of those sort of key moments along your journey where you recognized that Maybe the skills that were effective for you before were sort of limiting your success. And I know you've been through everywhere from the mailroom right up to the executive suite. So I'd love to hear maybe a couple of examples that we can sort of share. Um, sure. What are the ones that comes to mind? Yeah, the first one that came to mind for me was I joined a startup called Epoch Innovations. And it was working to help folks with dyslexia to improve their lives through essentially neuro performance. It was one of my failures. 
but I was early there and I met someone, his name is Keith Raboy. He's now a famous venture capitalist, but he was part of the PayPal team. And they had asked me to build a little website for Epoch Innovations, and I did. And it looked great. Uh, and I had done qualitative with potential customers, et cetera. And he looked at it and said, I really don't care what it looks like. I just want to know if it performs. Like, what are the metrics? And it was this very, you know, for me, it was this new perspective. He had come out of PayPal. Clearly, they had learned a lot about consumer science and A-B testing. And that was all new to me. I had actually been very successful in building kids software, mainly because I would kid test, kid test, kid test. It was my reliance on qualitative and the ability to really get inside the heads of kids, making stuff simple and easy for them, as well as the parents. So it was a little bit of shock to me when Kevin said, hey, I don't care what they said. I don't care what it looks like. I just want to see the data. And that was an important new insight for me. In my startups since then, they've all been very data-driven, all very focused on what I call consumer science. So that's really interesting, right? Like, because often I think what's prevalent in the industry is people are building these products that they like. They're showing them to people saying, do you like my product? And then hope that they're onto a winner by just pushing it out there. But it sounds like, you know, you were starting to get challenged and based on what people had learned at PayPal, that really what you needed to start thinking about was, well, what are we trying to achieve and how might we get there? And maybe maybe even people didn't care so much about how you got there. Yeah, I mean, I bumped into the same phenomenon. I interviewed at Netflix circa 2005 and Reed Hastings was the CEO. He really only had two questions of me. The first was, can you delight customers? And I told him about my first hit product was called Elmo's Preschool. It was wonderfully delightful and zillions of parents had bought it. I can't remember if Reed had or not. The second question was, can you do consumer science? And luckily I knew what he meant because we had talked about it. He described, you know, what he wanted his legacy at Netflix to be was this system of consumer science, this idea that he didn't know or understand what customers would love, but he wanted to create a system where you could test to discover that. And for him, consumer science was forming these hypotheses, quickly putting them into A-B tests where you would have different experiences and then see which one moved the metrics. And luckily, I at the time, I had just barely enough insight about that. And luckily, I had taken statistics in business school, thank God. But that's where I got my real introduction to consumer science. And actually, the first year was hard. You know, every seat, there's always a pet project from CEOs. Yeah, of course. And his was, his theory was previews would help people to find movies that they'll love. The vision was that you'd come to the homepage of your website, Netflix, and there would be a preview that automatically rolled. It would be a personalized choice, a movie that we thought you'd love. It would also help the business, which is uh, we would provide previews of, I call it long tail content, you know, great movies that weren't new releases because new releases were really expensive to mail to you the next day in the mail. This is the era of DVDs. And I had done a lot of focus groups, qual, and folks hated previews. Yeah. <laughs> right? They just found them annoying. And, you know, we learned that the only reason they watched previews in theaters was they were there early to get a good seat. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, they hate previews. And Reed's like, you know, I don't care what 80 people in a focus group room says. 
I want to launch it, get it out there and see if it moves the metrics or not. And we would debate this because he was deeply wary of my need to do qualitative, to actually talk to the customers. And at the end of the first year, we launched previews and it failed. (laughs) Okay. And we had a little bit of a detente. I promised that I would never, ever, ever make a decision about launching something or not on the basis of qualitative, but I would continue to do it because it gave me, first, it gave me great ideas talking to customers. And then second, it helped me to sort of get the voice of the customer in the back of my head. And that helped me generate new hypotheses that we could put quickly into A-B testing. Anyways, that was a year of learning for me. I think it was a year of learning for Reed too. Because uh, like I would say it was a hysterical year two. It's late at night. There was Reed behind the mirror in the focus group room. We had one in Los Gatos in the building, which is a no-no. I can explain why later. Uh, but it was when we were experimenting with TV-based systems. And we actually couldn't A-B test these test systems. They were secrets. And the only data we could get was watching people using it in our focus group room. So I was just surprised to see Reed Hastings, you know, at eight o'clock at night, watching through the mirror like the rest of us. Anyways. Well, you see, yeah, there's lots of interesting parts there for me, right? Like, first of all, you're almost starting to recognize the cross-functional power of both of your sort of subtle biases, right? Like your propensity to qualitatively talk to customers and read quantitatively starting to push towards like, let's get it out there and let the data decide. Yep. Yep. So it becomes really interesting to me when, you know, we're talking about these sort of systems that people have in place to help them make tough decisions. Yep. Right. And getting good at describing what success is in measurable terms. Yeah. And then finding ways to explore how can you achieve that outcome that you've described in the quickest, safest, fastest manner. What's really interesting to me is we're sort of talking about a time where maybe technology wasn't super prevalent throughout Netflix. Like this sort of early feedback mechanism of the customer testing cycles, Reed being there doing a experiencing actually, you know, getting a signal for how customers might respond to some of these new ideas you have in a very non-technical or technology-driven way. So when people hear data, that's what they often take, right? But I'm interested that you're sort of already instituting this sort of system in a manual way. Well, so back then, I mean, let me further describe consumer science, or I call it customer obsession. It's the idea of putting the customer at the center of everything you do. And I have many tools and models that I've learned. And my job is to delight customers in these hard to copy margin enhancing ways. But the data that I seek, or if I'm trying to understand if an environment or a company is customer obsessed, I'm looking for a mix of existing data. Do they have the data that describes what customers are doing today? And also something that reflects on shareholder value. Like, is there some way of deriving revenue? I do look to see if they have qualitative because I continue to believe that having the voice of the customer in your head is important. And I, I always get good ideas when I talk to to customers. The other thing I look for is, do they have an A-B test system? Once they have a theory or a hypothesis that's derived from the existing data or via qualitative or survey data, can they quickly and easily put things into A-B tests? And then the last is, do they have a strategy? Do they have theories and hypotheses about how they will 
or hope to delight customers in these hard to copy margin enhancing ways. The thing I've learned is uh, metrics, 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 ways of measuring if you're succeeding or not is super important. At Netflix, at the end of the day, that the metric was my job to improve retention. So the idea was if your product was better, people would pay for it each and every month. Yeah, every month, right? Yeah, every month. You know, when Netflix was born, 10% of its members would quit every month. Circa 2005, when I joined Netflix, about 4.5% of the members would quit every month. Today, 2% quit every month. And it's largely because there's no money in their bank account or it's summer and, you know, maybe they shouldn't be binge watching strangers. So there's my top line metric. Then the key thing is developing these proxy metrics. So for instance, uh, Brent Avery was the product leader for streaming. When we launched streaming January 2007 with 300 stinky titles, the proxy metric was what percentage of members watched at least 15 minutes in a month. And that 15 minutes came from the shortest episodic TV show, the smallest increment of value we could create. Great, yeah. When it launched, it was 5% of members watched at least 15 minutes a month. You know, today, I'm sure the metric's different. It's probably, Netflix is probably looking at percentage of members that watch at least 600 minutes a month, whatever it is. And I'm sure that metric is probably, you know, probably somewhere in the 90s. Um, Anyways, that's an example of a proxy metric. You know, Brent's job was just to move that proxy metric, uh, to develop theories and hypotheses in, in that area that would encourage more members to stream. And I'm just trying to give you a sense of how important the big dog metric retention at Netflix was. And for every one of the product leaders who worked for me, that they would each have a proxy metric that defined their success or failure. And I'm a good person, a nice person, but, you know, my joke is I need you to move your proxy metric where I will kill you. And most of them (laughs) understood the spirit of that as as I think that you do. Well, I think, you know, it was one of the most interesting parts uh, when we were discussing this. In so many organizations, first of all, the sort of big dog metric feels so abstract to most people. Right, the fact in Netflix you have something that's quantifiable, right? And that you talk about rates or ratios of things, percentage improvements relative to where people are, right? They're really crisp, quantifiable outcomes, not only at the sort of system organizational level, but you're also creating that at the local level. So for the people who are contributing to the big dog metric, they have this proxy metric where they say, if I hit this, I believe it will impact uh, your big dog metric or system yes. level yep. metric. So there's this great system of accountability that you're building into the company, which then also allows you to have control, but you're pushing command down to the people at the front line who may know the most about streaming, about whatever topic that you're totally trying to do. So this creates this amazing system of accountability, but also ties into your freedom and responsibility piece. I think that's so unique about Netflix is pushing the command down to the lowest level for people to make good decisions because they have a system of accountability in place. Yeah. You know, but you're correct that I could still do it today for each of the product leaders. Like for instance, Todd Yellen was maniacally focused on personalization. The high level theory was that a, a more personalized experience would improve retention. His metric was the percentage of new members who provided us with at least 50 ratings, five zero, 
within their first six weeks with the service. And it surprises people. So think about that. Think back to the DVD era. What would be your guess on what percentage of members would rate at least 50 movies in their first six weeks? I'm saying low. Like I'm thinking like less than 20. Yeah. So most people will guess one or two and you're substantially higher than they. And the answer is that Todd drove that into the high 20s. It was like 28%. But that was his proxy metric. And the proxy is really interesting because the theory was that the reason that people were rating a lot of movies was that they appreciated the result of the work, that they would get great personalized recommendations. That was the reason they were doing it. Yeah. And that proxy metric, what's beautiful about proxy metrics like that is for Todd, it defined what success looked like. And then what he would do is create lots of theories and hypotheses about how to drive that metric north. He would do lots of A-B tests. That's how we got there. Actually, the key insight was something called the the ratings wizard. It was a tab. It said movies you'll, and there was a little red heart, so movies you'll heart. And the designers called it fugly, which I think is a combination of funky <laughs> and ugly. That's a design term, I'm sure. But you'd click on that and it'd say, hey, the more you rate, the more we'll help you to find movies you'll love. And people would go on these ratings jags and they would rate lots of movies. But you know, it was that invention that drove that proxy metric. And it was that invention and, and a lot of other tactics that gave Netflix lots of data about what movies people like and don't like. And at the end of the day, Netflix has now established that a more personalized experience does in fact improve retention. Uh, And it's a big part of Netflix's success today. I mean, today it's way cool because they can forecast. Today it's all about the original content. And Netflix has the taste data for 140 million worldwide members. So they can make guesses about will folks watch this new original series or not? And that lets them decide how much to invest. So Netflix will guess that 10 million members will watch BoJack Horseman, which I love. And then they'll guess that 100 million people will watch Strangers, which I also love. But at the end of the day, they'll invest 10x in Stranger Things as opposed to BoJack Horseman so they can right-size the investment. So that's an example of how Netflix delights customers. They help you find great stuff and hard to copy. The hard to copy thing is that personalization technology is really hard to build. And it's hard for somebody else to, to copy in margin-enhancing ways. And the margin-enhancing part today, it's largely about right-sizing those, that investment in original content. So anyways, it's way cool. Well, what is way cool about it is it seems to be this critical thinking, scientific approach that runs up and down every level of this company. Right? You're describing yourself as a product leader, describing outcomes, encouraging people to come up with options to get there thinking big, starting small, experimenting with many options to find out what the winner is and move forward. But now we're we're thinking like the company is, is applying that to even the way it creates content. It has a hypothesis about shows that people might like. It uses its data to sort of create that hypothesis and right size the type of experiment that they want to run. So why they obviously put 10 times more into Stranger Things versus another show is there's a confidence there. So it's really interesting for me to hear how this sort of system has sort of permeated the whole company of getting good at describing outcomes, options to get there, having good telemetry feedback mechanisms to find out is it driving the results you want or not. 
and then making great investment decisions based on that. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that idea, that dream that Reed brought up in 2005 of consumer science, he described it in a very low ego way. He was sort of, hey, someone like Steve Jobs has an intuitive sense about what resonates with customers or not, but I don't. I'm just a geeky engineer. That's not quite Reed's voice, but... um, (laughs) But the consumer science, that system obviously lives on. And you're right. I mean, it's pretty cool. You wouldn't think intuitively that folks in LA who are tastemakers would be so reliant on data, but I think that they are. One thing that Netflix has been clear about is, yes, they'll make informed decisions about how much to invest. They'll do a forecast of how many folks will watch something. But they are staying out of the way of the creatives, the folks that are creating Stranger Things. They're not trying to inform their storytelling. It's early days. I mean, I've seen some quotes from the LA content team that at the end of the day, it's kind of 30% data and 70% intuition and good luck. Maybe 10 years from now, that'll be a little bit different. I'm not sure. We'll see. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So... You know, this is really exciting to hear uh, about these examples of customer science. But one of the things I'd love to probe a little bit more is some of the systems that you set up internally as a product leader at Netflix and other companies, obviously, after that, where, you know, so much of management that I come up against is about telling people what to do, how to do it, what needs to be done. Their perception of leadership is command and control. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the really interesting things that have come out from Netflix and not necessarily from just a product context, but also the engineering context mm-hmm. is like really embracing chaos, chaos engineering or understanding how to deliberately explore uncertainty. I'd love to hear some of your sort of learnings in that space as you started to solve problems maybe that were never had to be solved before, where you had such a massive of people coming to your product and understanding how to build things for them yeah, and create teams that could figure that out for themselves. Yeah. So let's start with, you know, inventing the future is really hard. Okay. I think some of my personal learning was one of the reasons I was very successful early in my career was that I was a highly effective manager. That meant I was really strong at hiring the right people, putting systems and process in place for people to build stuff, and then helping people to grow their careers. One day, Reed said to me that I was one of the best managers in the building, but he didn't say it as though it was a positive. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, huh. (laughs) And so I'll tell you how I parsed it and, and how I changed a bit. One of the ideas at Netflix was context, not control. And so the, the meetings that were most appreciated are essentially strategy meetings. So the idea was that you sort of learn to over-communicate the strategy and what success looked like, the metrics that we were trying to hit. And then I did learn to embrace the chaos quite a bit more. You know, at the end of the day, success relied on high cadence testing, the, the willingness to experiment with lots of ideas, some big, some small, in order to discover what works. I did invent something that became part of the Netflix culture. You use a phrase, 
part of the culture, the, the idea of freedom and responsibility, context, not control. One of the inventions was something called the quarterly strategy meeting. And that's when Reed, who had great insight about products, Neil Hunt, who was the chief technology officer, these guys were awesome and added heat. And they had insight from the startup, the company. We'd bring them into the room and all these product leaders. And the product leaders would, what happened in the meeting, it would happen once a quarter, it was usually a day long, was each of the product leader would talk about their theories and hypotheses, that the metrics that they were moving, their results and learnings, what worked and what didn't. And then we would discuss. And then they would also talk about the future hypotheses, the, the next things that they were going to test. And of course, there was lots, of, plenty of success and lots of failure. And at the higher level, it was our job to decide how much to invest in each area. So personalization, you know, great story. Moved the proxy metrics, proved that it improved retention. I'll give you a negative story. We had a theory, like many companies, it's been wonderfully successful for many companies, that social was an important strategy. And the idea was that Netflix members would enjoy getting great movie ideas from their friends. Yeah. These friends would be connected with them in a network. You'd have a hard-to-copy network effect. You wouldn't leave Netflix because all your friends were there. That was the theory. And the proxy metric for that was the percentage of members who connected with at least one friend on Netflix. And when we launched that friends feature, we launched to 2%. A year later, we were up to a whopping 4%. A year later, we were up to a whopping 6%. And if you think it through, if you're trying to improve retention, you need to get something like 20% engaged yeah. in a feature like that. So it was sort of three years in at one of these quarterly product strategy meetings where we decided, okay, game over. We'll stop investing that area and essentially double down on personalization. At that meeting, you know, the way Reed wanted it or liked it was he kind of, wanted it to feel like you're throwing the product leaders to the lions. It was a room that was round. It kind of looked like a coliseum. But, you know, like we all change and grow up. In the old days, I think he would say, that's a bad idea. I think as he matured, and we were all learning and growing together, he would say things like, why do you think that's a good idea? <laughs> Which is a substantially better way to say it. That's management for uh, sure. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah, but for me... I think what happened to me is I spent less time thinking about management. I mean, at some point, I, I had hired a great team and I was always upgrading, but I spent a lot more time thinking about strategy. I probably can still articulate. You know, at the end of the day, the high-level strategies that work were personalization. In the early DVD days, it was all about instant DVD delivery, getting the disc to you the next day, and then obviously later it was streaming. Friends failed previews and unique movie finding ideas failed. A theory that a simple and easier experience would improve retention, that worked. Uh, and then one of the big dogs over time as streaming grew was creating a network effect around devices. So today, every DVD, Blu-ray player, every television, every game system, every mobile device is pre-wired to deliver Netflix streaming. And that became a great Hard to copy advantage that's wonderfully delightful for customers. They can watch movies anytime, anywhere. And there's a business in there. There's margin enhancement. So that's how I thought about the product strategy. And then for each of the, I had a product leader focused on each of those ideas, a proxy metric that they were working to move. And in turn, they could articulate their theories and hypotheses about how they would move their proxy. And so there's a certain discipline to all of that. 
but I never was telling people what to do. Like sometimes you'd have, I mean, one of the hardest things for me is you would have an idea, but I'd try my best to sort of, to plant it with someone. So they would take on full ownership of it. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most interesting parts too. You're describing like guiding through questions rather than handing solutions and answers to people. I like they build a psychological accountability for these things when they're in forums that you've created where you're describing from a business perspective what you're trying to achieve in quantifiable outcomes. They're showing their proxy version of that and showcasing that not only to the leadership, but to their peers yeah. in an open manner, right? Like you're creating mechanisms to share these sort of deliberate outcomes people are aiming for up and down the entire company. Yeah. And then not beating them up, but trying to encourage them different ways to think about yeah, it. Like, well, let me be controversial for a moment. You brought up this concept of psychological safety. And that's oftentimes something that I'm not sure if it's right. So let me give you a different perspective. When I joined Netflix, like the average tenure of the VP of product there was like three to six months. Like there were a lot of dead bodies before I showed up. And I spent a lot of time trying to understand that because I didn't want to take the job for three or six months. And what I discovered was that there was a startup team that loved building stuff, but hadn't embraced Reed's notion of consumer science, the, the better living through A-B testing. I think of myself as a builder. So I don't like to be at a company at the start. I like joining startups with a proof of concept that are ready to scale and then helping them scale. And so I built a team of builders. But then later, like, I certainly wasn't the right person to take Netflix from 20 million to today it's at 140 million members. I had the benefit of taking a statistics course at business school. But today I'm confident that there's product leaders that have got masters in statistics. You might have created a, a system of psychological safety for me, but I wouldn't have been the right person. So, you know, there were lots of cases of us deciding that it was time for one of those starters to move on. That was not a psychologically safe thing to do. Yeah, I guess another thing I learned from Netflix is it's just awesome to be engaged with exceptionally bright, incredibly results-driven people who deliver the results. And often at different stages in companies, those are different people. Early stages, the starters are fundamentally different from the builders, and oftentimes the builders are different from the the kind of people who today Netflix is a beyond pro team. It's actually a dream team. And so I would say that Netflix was not like a psychologically safe environment. There would often be contemplation about the, I called it the um, sniper in the building. You know, huh, why is that person leaving? You even see it today. I mean, they've been public about some of the people they've let go. Anyways, I bring that all up in the spirit of questioning the idea of psychological safety. Is it always the right thing? Not sure. Nice. Yeah. Moving on from some of your experiences, we've talked lots of great stuff here about proxy metrics. I love your ideas of delighting customers in hard to copy margin enhancing ways, creating systems that you can rapidly experiment to see if you're achieving the outcomes you want. And how you started off really small by doing that qualitatively, sitting in rooms with customers right up to the quantitative manners now that you sort of see with the way Netflix is informing the types of 
content it creates based on the data they're collecting. You know, what are some of the other points that have sort of jumped out to you in your own career as you sort of move forward? And, you know, now you're a teacher, you advise so many companies, you, you know, you're very liberal with sharing your experiences with people through talks, workshops, and conferences that you go to now. You know, it feels like you're sharing the lessons you've had to learn and unlearn as you go forward. What are some of the points that you think people should really think about? So for me personally, the reason I brought up the fact that I ran a sailing school and was a teacher early in my career was I knew then I loved to do it. And then I chose not to be a teacher. I had the insight that didn't pay that well, sadly. And then if you look at my career, I've bounced back and forth between doing good for the world in the context of teaching. So I built Sesame Street software and ran product for the learning company but also doing things that paid better, like building bang, bang, shoot 'em up games for electronic arts or, <laughs> or binge watching at Netflix or back to goodness. Chegg was, is a textbook rental and homework help company for college students. Anyways, there's a thread throughout that, which is I have always been teaching. So one of my hacks when I was working at all those companies, I always did something called topic dissement, which is a joke. That's my bad French, but it means topic of the week. And every Friday morning at nine or 10, I would talk about some new concept. So at Netflix, it would have been about consumer science or how to set up, evaluate an A-B test, or it might've been how to discover if you've got the right proxy metric. I would do that every Friday morning. And honestly, I I didn't realize it until the last couple of years. That was one of the most effective tactics I had for learning stuff. So uh, that Thursday night of actually having to codify my thoughts and then sharing with others was just an amazing way for me to learn. And I did that for 25 years. So now I'm in my last three years, I call it career hacking. So three years ago, I stopped working for direct deposit and I had multiple theories and hypotheses about what I would enjoy doing. Should I become a VC? No, that's a bad idea for me. Should I be a teacher? I've taught courses at Stanford. Should I not work? No, I would go crazy. But I had these multiple theories and hypotheses, and I just found ways to quickly experiment with them. I'll tell you where I've arrived. At some point, I realized that I just loved creative pursuit, and the creative pursuits are giving talks, doing workshops, writing, and then My joke is you can never do more than three things. So the fourth thing is podcasts, and I just don't have very much time for it. But I love doing those things. My purpose is largely around teaching. I would say it took me a year or two of experimenting to discover that's how I wanted to spend my time. And it's been awesome because I I love learning new things. And the first talk I ever gave sucked. We could find it somewhere. But now I use NPS today is my proxy metric. I can't A-B test, but at the end of every talk I give, I bring up a QR code that takes them to a SurveyMonkey link, and I discover what my net promoter score is, which I think is a good proxy for product quality. And I'm unsatisfied until it's above 70. I think my highest ever is 89. I'm proud of that. And I do the same thing at the end of every article I write. There's a net promoter survey, workshops. I can give two workshops in the course of a day, the morning one, and then I reflect on the data at lunch and then I'll, the afternoon one will be better. So pro tip, always come to my afternoon workshops. <laughs> Anyways, what I'm trying to point out is that 
building a career is a lot like building a product. You have theories and hypotheses, you have metrics, and you can test and learn and experiment your way to discover what works. And that's just been great fun for me in the last three years. The idea of always be teaching, because that's a good way to frame your thinking and to learn. Then I had one other idea that's been incredibly helpful to me. Like in reading your book, I understand the value of self-awareness. I just think that's incredibly hard. So I have this, I've always had a personal board of directors. It's a collection of peers, people I've worked with, and uh, mentors, people who can see around corners because they've been there, done that. It changes radically depending on what I'm focused on. So in the last three years, I added Dan Olson to my board of directors. Dan had been giving talks and workshops for three years before I even thought about it, right? I mean, I had a neat conversation with you today about talks and writing books, et cetera, because you're like five or 10 years ahead of me on that. But this idea of personal board of directors that has real insight about the things that you're trying to explore and frankly care about you. I mean, that's the trickiest part. They have to care about you and then they have to deliver the hard truths. They've got to be candid and care about you. Irv Grossbeck probably still is a professor of entrepreneurship at Stanford. He's a buck a year professor because he invented the cable TV industry. He went to Little Amherst College, which is where I went to. When I sat in his office hours, and this is probably three or four years ago, I was debating whether I should become a CEO for a startup. And he's like, Gib, can I tell you something you may not like to hear? I'm like, oh, shit, what? He said, I think you'd be a horrible startup CEO. You're too nice. And I swear to God, that guy saved me like five or 10 years of pain (laughs) just with that insight because he cared about me and he was willing to be candid with me. So my last pro tip there is invest time and energy in building your personal board of directors that's comprised of both peers and mentors. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear that story, right? Because it's, you're applying this to your life, everything. You know, this is a system of operation for you and you're reaping so many benefits from it. It manifests in different subtle ways, like your personal board of directors, again, it, it's like your outcome for what you want to achieve with your life. And, and they're acting as a proxy set of customers to help you make those decisions. They're giving you tough feedback, but from a point of view of they want you, your product to be better. And it's helping you navigate uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It is. I thought of one other hack. I took a vacation one week at Netflix. I came back and Michael Rubin, he was a photographer. He had taken a photograph of me was sort of one of those classic leaning back in a chair looking and he had made like 50 copies of them and then put a cartoon balloon and while I was gone my team had put gibisms little things that I would say often and one of them that struck me was there in the little cartoon balloon was the phrase treat me like I'm stupid which I didn't realize until then that I use that tactic all the time. Like when I'm starting a new job or trying to learn a new industry, I just sort of start with the treat me like I'm stupid. I mean, just daring to acknowledge that you're at the beginning of your learning curve and there is no stupid question. I think the other thing I learned is I love learning new stuff. If you look at my career, I'll go three to five years at a company and then I'm on to the next thing. If you look at my athletic career, It wasn't enough just to learn to downhill ski. I had to learn how to skate ski and snowboard and telemark ski, et cetera. I just learning new stuff and that sort of willingness 
to be really sucky at stuff in the beginning and just say, treat me like I'm stupid and to acknowledge that you're at that point in the learning curve as long as you can has been super helpful to me. Yeah. And and these are great attributes, right? Like one of the things I talk a lot about with unlearning is you've got to be willing to make yourself be uncomfortable, right? Get comfortable with being uncomfortable um, and vulnerable, right? Like, and, and you're giving people agency to help their vulnerability by saying, treat me like I'm stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Let's learn together. Let's empty our minds of any notions of assumptions of what's correct or incorrect. Let's go on this emergent learning experience together, but we'll have these mechanisms in place to sort of steer us in the direction that we want to go. So, you know, even these like little examples you share, you're constantly trying to grow. You're creating outcomes of new things to help you grow and improve ways to experiment, find out if you're moving in the directions you want. Yep. Yeah. You know, when I'm talking about management, I often say you got to unlearn management and relearn leadership. Yeah. What is an example from your career, maybe, where you've had to go through that process? Or maybe you were told something, a way to do something, but then you realized actually by following that advice, that wasn't necessarily the right thing to do. Yeah, I have a couple examples. I was a co-founder of a kid's software startup called Creative Winners. We sold it to the learning company and then we sold it to Mattel. If you look at my career progression, it was rapid. You know, I was in the right place at the right time. So I was a senior vice president of product for a learning company in Mattel. I was talking with the HR partner there and he said, hey, Gib, at this stage in your career, it's all about the leadership. It's all about the communication it's all about strategy, but it's not critical that you maintain your technical skills, that you be close to the details of the work, et cetera. And I reflected on that and I spent much more time on leadership and strategy. When I got to Netflix, that advice got me in trouble. There was an expectation at Netflix that everybody could think and do, that you could operate at the high level as a leader and define a strategy. At Netflix, you did have to be close to the details of the work. And so I can remember at some point, I it was like night school, where I was digging in the dirt to understand exactly how all the A-B test systems worked, for instance. And I was looking at the structure of every A-B test that, that every product leader had in the field. I learned that, you know, through... Reed's example. It took me a year. The first year he would send an email to me, it said minor. Okay. And then there would be some minor bug or whatever else. And over that first year, I I had about 50 of those emails and I began to learn what were the details that he cared about. So for instance, at the launch of a new product or feature, I learned to get into the dirt of every single FAQ for instance, because I knew Reed would be looking at those, right? But it was he who was training me on the importance of details. So that was a good example of me unlearning the bad advice from my HR partner at the learning company, Mattel, and relearning the skill and how Reed did it in a wonderfully soft-handed way, which I deeply appreciate today. (laughs) So I, I remember that process well. And one of the things we talk a lot about with unlearning is giving people like little prompts. Yes. To introduce new behaviors. Yes. 
So it's interesting to hear yeah. well, Reed even yeah, use this I as a... What I should say is that next year, I think I got like five right. minor emails from Reed. So yes, I had learned. <laughs> but you're right. It was very effective. Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice point. Yeah. So what about organizations relearning as opposed to individuals? You've been through so many of these companies that have had to go through different stages of their life from startup to scale up, scale up to enterprise to IPOing. Is there any examples that come to mind of a company that had to relearn? Yeah. So in the last three years, I've done a lot of things. One of the things I, from time to time, I'm an exec and resident. So I'll spend three days a week with a company. And one of those companies is NerdWallet. NerdWallet gives each of us financial insight about what credit cards to use or which bank to work with or the right home loan or any number of things. It's a great startup. Uh, but when I first started talking to them, they were in that stage. The start was successful. And then they were building the next stage of the company. And they were great at SEO. So if you typed in best credit card into Google, you would find NerdWallet. And they were also great at creating business partnerships. So the way their business worked was at some point you'd get a wonderfully unbiased and a great recommendation about the right credit card for you. And then NerdWallet would get $50 from the partner. The relearning that NerdWallet needed to learn was to build a real product and a real technology organization. So at the end of the day, I spent about a year with NerdWallet in, in a three-day-a-week role, helping them to understand what product leadership looked like, helping them to understand that the director-level product leader that was a wonderful startup, starter, was not going to scale, and then you know, nicely encouraging the CEO there, Tim, to start looking around for product leaders who had been there and done that. And that's hard. That's hard going from that everybody grab a shovel stage of a startup and into the next stage where, you know, you have two, three, 400 people. You have to think ahead. You have to think about how do we build long-term value. And it's typically fraught with procrastination. <laughs> so anyways, that and, and NerdWallet got there, which I'm pleased for them and the company. And over time, they will provide insight to hundreds of millions of folks all over the world about how to conduct their financial lives better, which is important. Yeah, so I wanted to thank you a lot, Gib, anyway, for your time today and, and being so open with all these great stories and experiences you shared of times you've had to both learn and unlearn and, and relearn many things to get a lot of the breakthroughs you've had in your career. I think definitely one of the things I'm going to take away from spending time with you is to be so rigorous about gathering feedback from when I do things. You know, it's inspiring to hear that you apply this system to everything that you do, whether it's your personal board of directors right through to every time you do a talk, soliciting some both qualitative and quantitative measures of what's worked and how things could be better. So thank you for prompting me to instill that discipline in more things that I do. You are very welcome. And I hope this conversation has been helpful to others. Another pro tip, you don't have to get an NPS survey for everything. I discovered it drives my wife crazy when I ask her to do a survey after dinner with me. So don't do that. 
Anyways, thanks so much for having me, Barry. Thanks a lot.